has been just over four years since I stood up here in the capacity of worship arts pastor, and some of you may be wondering, how are your headaches doing? Well, there hasn't really been a cause identified other than some of my top vertebrae impeding on my brainstem. It's been a tough road for my family and for me, but I'm grateful to have had some relief from symptoms in the last six months. I'm hopeful that this trend will continue, and soon I'll be 100%. When Carl said that we were studying parables, I wondered how to choose a parable. I read through them multiple times. Do I choose the one about a bit of yeast for a large batch of dough so that when you're entering the sanctuary, I could have the smell of bread rising? Do I choose the parable of the lost coin and dress up like an elderly woman and be searching the foyer and asking you as you enter, have you seen my lost coin? While there are some parables that can be expressed uniquely to make us think a little further, I was drawn somehow to the parable of the weeds. I suppose I could dig up several baskets of dandelions and share them with you as an object lesson, but I think we all have enough. Instead, we'll suffice with a modern parable. I was trying to give you a Peanuts comic, but alas, there are copyright rules. So a parable is a metaphor or simile that makes a comparison in regular life. The Greek word for parable is parabole, or in Hebrew, masal, which means a comparison. The Old Testament also uses such comparisons in riddles, proverbs, and allegories. One well-known Old Testament parable is Nathan telling King David about the ewe lamb in 2 Samuel 12. It compares the story of a poor man's lamb being unjustly taken and David, who has taken another man's wife. Parables become a distinctive method of communication with Jesus in the Gospels. He regularly uses metaphoric imagery, for example, referring to people as salt and light, or to the religious leaders as a brood of vipers. There are 30 to 40 parables in the Gospels, depending on how loosely you apply the term. Today, we'll look specifically at the parable of the weeds in the larger discourse of Matthew 13. Let's briefly summarize a few points about the Gospel of Matthew that will help us with the context of today's parable. Matthew is often thought to have been written by the disciple Matthew, but there is evidence that points otherwise. But for now, just to make it easy, we'll say that the author is Matthew. The gospel is directed at a Greek-speaking Jewish audience during the time of the Second Temple, which lasted about till 70 AD in Jerusalem. The religious environment was Jewish, while the land itself was occupied by Romans. Louise Shawtroff describes the circumstances of the people in Matthew to be so poor that their relationship with God was disintegrating. She suggests that the diseases ailing the people are linked with the condition of hunger. This is a little picture into the Gospel of Matthew. He spends the first 10 chapters of the Gospel focusing on Jesus' calling as God's Son and the beginning of his earthly ministry. The next section of chapters 11 to 16 bookend our chapter of interest, which is Matthew 13. These chapters are where we see how different people groups respond to Jesus. The recurring tune is rejection by the majority of Israel. However, Jesus' closest followers are beginning to understand Jesus' identity and to join him on his mission to establish the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, or the reign of God, 
are ideas that appear in earlier apocalyptic books like Daniel. The righteous, the evil, or the sons of the kingdom, these are all eschatological or end times concepts. Jesus has introduced the kingdom here in Matthew, having already preached the Sermon on the Mount, plus a second major dialogue in Matthew 10. So now, in chapter 13, Jesus speaks eight parables supported by explanations. These parables, all eight of them, are about a treasure that, according to Jesus, makes life worthwhile. This treasure is the kingdom of God, and it's going to include all nations. The first four parables are dominated by the topic of grain or food production, and they start with sentences like, the kingdom of God may be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is speaking of the imminence of God's reign and the realities related to its coming. So let's look a little closer at the beginning of Matthew 13. Try saying this 10 times fast. He begins with a sower who sowed seeds in different types of soil. It got me many times. Following that comes today's parable, which to me was lesser known, the parable of the weeds. Then comes the mustard seed, which we'll hear Pastor Ruth speak about in a few weeks, and the parable of the yeast. These four parables together are shaped like a smaller collection stemming from Mark 4. But the parable of the weeds there is much shorter, and it's hardly the same material. Otherwise, today's parable doesn't exist in the Gospels. Matthew and Mark agree that the setting is the edge of the Sea of Galilee near a house in Capernaum where Jesus regularly frequents. With the crowd surrounding him, Jesus goes out in a boat, just like the Sermon on the Mount. However, as described here in Matthew, Jesus isn't teaching the crowds, but rather he's speaking in parables to conceal his message. Elsewhere, parables have enriched Jesus' teaching, but here in Matthew, it is Israel's unbelief that doesn't allow them to understand. The disciples have already had their eyes and ears opened with God's grace. They are also privy to Jesus' explanation, which they ask him for later. So I'd like to read the parable of the weeds in the NRSV. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field, but while everybody is asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well, and the slaves of the householder came to and said to him, Master, did you not grow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. I have flashbacks of being a young teenager and going out to rogue the crop with my entire family. Now, roguing is where you pull out the weeds and grasses that exist in the field and they don't belong by hand. Thankfully, this field was not huge. I guess my dad figured that the effort wasn't worth it because he didn't plant that type of seed crop again, for which young me was very grateful. Now, the King James Version refers to the weeds as tares, and commentaries point to a specific poisonous plant called darnel. The thing is, darnel looks exactly like wheat until the plant begins to head out later in a growth stage. 
This is what happens in our parable, and the slaves realize something is amiss. After speaking to the crowd in four parables, Jesus and his disciples make their way to the house near Capernaum. And here he explains the parable to his disciples. Picking up with verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the of the age, and the reapers are angels. Jesus then moves into an apocalyptic view of end times. Just as the weeds are collected and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. I want to talk about five things that we can learn from this parable. Number one is, if you don't know, ask. Let's begin with the servants. When the servants notice that something is not right in the field, they come to ask questions of the farmer. They don't pause to contemplate that they may appear ignorant, and they are not afraid. Psalm 25, verse 8 and 9 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in, in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Last week, Shoaib was quoting C.S. Lewis on humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. This has stuck with me through the week. There's benefit in humility, asking when we don't understand and seeking God's guidance in the midst of uncertainty. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Now, Ren Collective, who sing My Lighthouse and Build Your Kingdom Here, they also wrote a song called Boldly I Approach, and the lyrics read like this. By grace alone somehow I stand, where even angels fear to tread, invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above. He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms. When condemnation grips my heart and Satan tempts me to despair, I hear the voice that scatters fear, the great I am, the Lord is here. Oh, praise the one who fights for me and shields my soul eternally. Boldly, I approach your throne. Jesus has made it possible for us to approach the only holy God and be able to stand in his presence. So if we don't know something or if we need something, let us come to him and ask. One of the tasks at the oak table where I volunteer is to butter buns for over 100 guests. This happens almost daily. And we were actually preparing for two sites one morning. So it was closer to 200 buns that I was looking at on the counter. It was quiet when I arrived. So I started buttering. And after about three dozen buns, I thought, what if these buns aren't for garlic toast? What if they're for hamburgers? The next time one of the managers walked through the kitchen, I made sure to ask so that I wasn't buttering 200 buns in vain. If you don't know, ask. 
One commentary suggested a practical habit of understanding and remembering God's word by discussing the sermon together afterward. If something that is said causes questions, ask the pastor or speaker about it. Jesus' parables are one way that he trained his disciples, especially when helping them understand how this kingdom would be shown. Number two is that good comes from God. As we've heard in the latter explanation of the parable, the precious good seed in the story are the faithful and true saints. We've been scattered like seed in a garden. Some places are thicker than others. Jesus is the farmer flinging the seed, and we are expected to grow and bear fruit. The Matthew Henry commentary says that the good in the world comes from God, both the good seed and his sowing. The success of our labor relies solely on his blessing. This is a good reminder that without him, our efforts will not be effective. Without him, we can do nothing. Stanley Hauerwas says in his commentary on Matthew, by our fruits we will be known, and those fruits are the ones spoken of in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted for righteousness' sake, the reviled because of Jesus. And why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth, be filled, receive mercy, see God, and they will be called children of God. Another example of God giving good things is found in Matthew 7, verse 9 to 11. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will you give a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? The tares or weeds are sinners or pretenders. If choosing temptation and darkness, the weeds are not good for anything except to be thrown in the trash. In the parable, they're burned so they don't contaminate future crops. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God, God's good comes to all, no matter their disposition. The kingdom of heaven is a field sown with God's seed. Jesus concedes that the kingdom is not coming quickly, but rather sometimes his outcomes will seem slow. Nevertheless, Jesus still declares the coming kingdom with hope. This year, due to the heat, I planted my garden early, before the long weekend in May. I watered it, and I waited, and then I waited some more. And about two weeks ago, I reseeded the garden box because nothing was coming up. Still nothing. Then we had a good rain, and finally, things started to sprout. Those seeds just needed a little good soaking from above to get growing. And this leads us to number three, patience. The servants are in a hurry to get rid of the weeds. They are reliable and conscious workers, but Jesus says all they are to do is wait. Wouldn't that be great if instead of weeding our gardens and yards, we could just sit in a lawn chair and wait? The thing is, is that God allows both evil and good to exist side by side. The field in the parable has often been thought to be the church, which is a community built on relationship in Christ rather than biological relationship. This parable has been used to ju justify church discipline, 
But we are cautioned to use great restraint, since the wheat or the good may also be destroyed. 2 Timothy 2.25 speaks of the gentleness required for correction, in hopes that there will be repentance. While this belief has fueled many a debate regarding church, there's also the Anabaptist understanding that the field refers to the whole world. Harawas writes of St. Augustine, who penned that in the world that will not recognize that the kingdom has come in Christ, this parable exists to sustain believers. It speaks to tolerance, with emphasis on not judging others and reconciliation. The juxtaposition of the good seed and weeds reminds us to have patience. A few verses after today's parable is the parable of the fish in the net. The net will be filled with both good and bad fish, but the church needs to be uncompromisingly patient to fulfill its role. As an apocalyptic parable, it points out that God will carry out the promised judgment in a thorough and complete manner in the end. This was really difficult for the people in Jesus' day to understand, since their belief was built upon the understanding that if the Messiah had indeed come, freedom from bondage had better come soon. Instead, Jesus announced the coming reign of God, but after several years of his ministry, it was not successful enough for their expectation. The two parables that follow today's also deal with the slowness of the arriving kingdom. Matt Woodley says, In many ways, Jesus' entire kingdom movement, including his followers, looked as insignificant, vulnerable, and imperfect as a tiny brown mustard seed. How could God possibly turn them into something good and glorious? It would take a miracle. Jesus' followers needed to trust that God would make something out of the insignificant. What is it that we need to trust God with? People who knew that I used to teach violin would describe me as a patient person. They said, you must be, if you can listen to so much screeching in a beginning violin lessons. The last few years have been teaching me a different type of patience. Patience and trust that when I left a job that I loved four years ago, that God knew what he was doing, that he had some kind of good in store for me. I'm still not sure what that plan is, but I trust, and some days I need reminders to trust, that he's got it under control. There are many days where I've wondered or lamented or been flat out frustrated because things were not changing fast enough for the good. Patience can be long, and it's not always easy. We've arrived at number four. The enemy is always looking for an opportunity to promote wickedness, the enemy being the devil. In the parable, covered darkness is the time when the weeds are sown into the farmer's field. Intentional interference with crops was unusual in Jesus' day, so it is assumed that an enemy must have done it. The kingdom of God must deal with evil surrounding it. The devil can use any part of the day or night to distract us, but we can pay particular attention when we're alone or when we're faced with temptation. Jesus himself was tempted, as recorded in Matthew 4, and was led alone to the wilderness by the devil. Jesus made it clear from the beginning that he came to defeat the one who continuously was opposing his work. In the day of harvest, known as the end of the world or judgment day, all will be judged, and every person reap what they have sown. 
there will be much rejoicing for the precious seed, but for those who have sown to the flesh, there will be much grief and disparity. The reapers in our parable are the angels who will carry out Christ's decision. They will bind in bundles or sort according to their kind, some bound for the barn of heaven, where there will be no more wind or weather. The grain will no longer be distant off in the field, but rather tucked up safely in the barn. The rest will be thrown in the fire. Malachi 3 verse 19 describes it this way. Then once more you shall see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty complete picture of wiping out the weeds. If you've ever tried to get rid of a thistle among the grass, or a dandelion, or a tree stump, it is very hard to demolish the roots. Malachi says that neither root nor branch will be left. And it continues, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise, but with healing in its wings. This leads us to our last point, and that is transformation. There are two kinds of transformation as I see it, or two parts. Transformation here on earth, and transformation as spoken of in verse 43. It reads, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. This latter transformation is spoken of in 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Our physical bodies sound like they will shine by reflecting God's glory. As the beginning of Matthew relates, Jesus has come to draw followers into his mission. Jesus quotes Psalm 78, verse 1 to 3, in Matthew 13, 35, saying, I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Quoting from Donald Sr. in his book on Matthew, Jesus is the parable of the Father making manifest what was present in the beginning. Our recognition of this requires our transformation in order that we may see Jesus as God incarnate. In growing our faith day to day, God transforms us to align us more with Jesus' mission and ministry. It's what we're doing here, right now in worship. God reveals himself through the proclamation of his word, the reading of scripture, through prayer, and in other ways. And when we respond, we're choosing that transformation, God changing us to line up more with his purposes. Senior makes sure to point out that the kingdom remains in spite of any Christian success. And I quote him, Christians must continue to live as if all hangs on our faithfulness to this man, Jesus, because all does hang on the reality of the kingdom as well as our response to the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and is. The parables are intended to show us the kind of transformation necessary for the disciples to join in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, the parables show us what kind of change is needed from us. So there you have it. If you don't know, ask. Good comes from God. 
have patience. The devil takes every opportunity and allow transformation in response to the revelation of who he is. I'd like to invite Rob and Matt to come forward while I close. Harawas speaks of the joy that the kingdom brings. It's a slow, permeating joy that requires the leaving of our former lives in order to have that great treasure of joy in Jesus. Harawas goes on so far as to say, Jesus teaches us through parables so that we might be for the world the material reality of the kingdom of heaven. That expectation invites us to daily offer ourselves and this community to God for his transforming hand to shape us and mold us into his created kingdom. Mm -hmm.